Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church uh, family. I want to invite you to to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. As I've been thinking about this message, I keep thinking about this song I hear on the radio from time to time by Drake. And I thought I'd just call on one of the brilliant poets, you know, such a sagacious uh, artist, uh, Drake from, uh, from Toronto, uh, to, to really sum up what this, what this portion of scripture is all about. The song is called God's Plan, seems kind of fitting for a storyline of scripture series. And in God's Plan by Drake, he says, bad things, bad things, a lot of bad things. He says that a number of times on auto-tune. I'm not a huge fan of Drake, sorry, the whole Degrassi thing, and I guess I'm just a little, little too old to be into the music the young kids are, are, are into. I'm not sure what he's talking about when he's talking about God's plan. I can't really understand anything else he's saying, but he keeps saying bad things, bad things, a lot of bad things. When we come to Genesis chapter 4 through 11 today, we're going to see just that, bad things, a lot of bad things. We're going to see a downward spiral into the devastation and depravity of humankind. As we follow the storyline of scripture, we're building a little bit of momentum here. We started with three chapters, Genesis 1 to 3. Now we're going to look at eight chapters, chapters 4 through 11. Um, next week, it's going to be 38 chapters, chapter 12 of Genesis through to 50. Then the week after that, we're going to be looking at four entire Old Testament books at one time. But remember where we left off, God had created the heavens and the earth and he created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and and gave them the privilege of being his image bearers and gave them the responsibility of filling the earth and subduing it and representing him. They were king, but they, king and queen, but they chose to follow the serpent. The serpent became king of their lives. But then God gave this incredible promise in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God makes this promise that this offspring was going to come from Adam and Eve, one of their descendants. And this offspring was gonna have his heel bruised by the serpent, but that this, this offspring was one day going to crush the head, bruise the head of the ultimate enemy. Now, as we pick up the story in Genesis chapter four, verse one, it says, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So Adam and Eve are now living outside of Eden. That's the title for today's message. And and outside of Eden, they have this initial hope with the birth of Cain. And Cain means possession. And Eve says, now I have this child. Perhaps this child that I have, maybe he is going to be the one that will crush the head of the serpent. But what we're gonna see as this story unfolds, just more and more evidence of the brokenness in our world. Remember the curses that were laid down in Genesis chapter three showed a brokenness in terms of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another and our relationship with the world. We're just gonna see more evidence of that brokenness. In verse two, they have another child. It says, and again, she bore his, 
She, again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. So we have a, we have a, a son named Cain. We have a, another son named Abel. Abel means breath. Here's a picture that I have an Abel in my own family. Here's a picture of our son, uh, Abel. And he is, uh, that's about as still as we could get him to be. He's doing his Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, imitation right there. And Abel means breath. And our Abel is a breath of life in our family. And when we pray for Abel, we pray this statement here at the end of verse four. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring. So Abel, I know you're watching right now and this is our desire, your mother and, and my desire for you that you would make offerings that are pleasing to the Lord. And this is what all of us are called to do, to live lives of worship that our whole life would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And even right now in your living room or at your kitchen table, as we had an opportunity to sing to the Lord, I hope you're making the most of that opportunity. Like the psalmist says, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, just like God accepted Abel's offering from the field. May God accept our offering of praise. So Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's wasn't. Cain became angry. Then look how the Lord goes after Cain in verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, notice what he says. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. He says that sin is crouching at the door and sin has a desire for Cain, but Cain must rule over it. This is the exact same language that is used when God was talking to Eve, when the curses were being laid down because of sin, that Eve would have a desire for her husband, but her husband would rule over. This idea of this conflict, one wanting to overpower and rule and manipulate the other. And God is telling Cain, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is trying to control you, Cain. You need to stop. You need to rule over it. Just like the Puritans would say, be killing sin or sin will kill you. Sin is never neutral towards us. Sin is always on the offense, always trying to destroy us. And we must be putting sin to death in our lives. But unfortunately, Cain doesn't rule over sin. Unfortunately, sin rules over Cain. In verse eight, it says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I, am I supposed to watch over him? Am I supposed to protect him? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Here we see utter corruption happening in the human race, utter corruption. If you're taking notes today, that's the first point, corruption. Notice how things escalate from eating fruit 
to now committing homicide. Within one generation, eating fruit, as soon as you start to rebel against God and as soon as you decide to be a lawbreaker and a lawmaker to decide what's right and what's wrong, see how quickly things escalate. There's two things that we can learn about sin as it relates to Cain in this story. The first one is this, before you commit sin, there is always a way out. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us there is no temptation that, that, that will overtake us. That is, that is not common to man and God always provides a way out. God came to Cain and he said to him, listen, heads up, man, sin is crouching at the door. Watch your step. You've got to rule over it. There was always a way out. So before sin, we need to know there's always a way out. And after we sin, there's, ne- there's no way you can cover it up. Presumably, Cain tried to bury his brother. And that's why God says that his blood is crying out from the ground. Cain thought he could just sort of hide. I don't, I don't know where my brother is. is. Is he my brother's keeper? When mom and dad, Adam and Eve asked him, hey, where's, where's Abel? Well, I don't know. I don't know where he is. He thought that he could cover up his sin. Listen. Your sin will find you out. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. These are two important lessons. So then in verse 11, we see that Cain clearly is not the offspring that's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is, he is being ruled by the serpent. He is being ruled by sin and he will not bring the blessing. In verse 11, it says, and now you are cursed. So Cain here experiences this curse. And as Genesis chapter four continues, we get down to uh, to uh, chapter four, verse 23, as it's describing the different descendants of Cain. And remember, sin is escalating, it's growing, it's like a virus, it's spreading and it's mutating and it can't be contained. So that we come to a verse 24, we're introduced to one of, one of Cain's descendants named Lamech. And it begins by saying, Lamech says to his wives, now notice that, wives, uh, plural. God's intention, it wasn't Adam and Eve and, and Sarah. No, it was Adam and Eve, one man and one woman. The, the, it was never intended for there to be multiple wives, multiple sexual partners. The aim is for the two to become one flesh, not three or four or five. And so Lamech was guilty of the sin of polygamy. We see sin escalating. And then he he says, it says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounded me, a, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. So Lamech, he's just going around killing everybody. Someone looks at him the wrong way. He is committing murder and he's writing a song about it. He's writing poetry about the bad things, the bad things, a lot of bad things. But God is faithful even in the midst of this. Chapter four follows the line of Cain. Then at the end of the chapter, we're told what's happening with Adam and Eve. In verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Again, her hope is in the offspring. Maybe Seth is going to be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. To Seth also, a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then in Genesis chapter 5, 1, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. 
When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named the man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So here we are in Genesis chapter 5, where we're told this is the book of the generations of Adam. The, the, the Hebrew phrase there, the book of the generations, is the word uh, toledoth. And we see these toledoths. Th- th- this is the book of the generations. These genealogies all throughout the book of, of Genesis. And, and we're told that we're reminded that even though Adam and Eve are fallen, they still hold the image of God. Do you see that there in verse one? When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. And that, that privilege of being image bearers is passed down from generation to generation. So sin is spreading and sin is being passed down from generation to generation, but also the image of God. Verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And then it goes on to say, the day, in verse four, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Verse six, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Now, a couple of things. One is just the incredible, um, uh, uh, the, the, the longevity of life that we see here. Adam living for 930 years. Seth living for 912 years. What is, what is going on here? Well, we need to remember that this is happening in close proximity to the fall. And it's also happening before the flood. That, that, that Adam and Eve, they were created to live forever. But as a result of the fall, we see them living for a shorter period of time. Even though it's 900 years, they still die. This also was all taking place in the days before the flood. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, it says that there was, it, it, it had never rained. There was no rain. All the water came up from under the earth. And the flood is when rain came for the first time. So clearly, the atmosphere is different. That's why you, you have fossils of enormous creatures in, the, in that time. That's why you have people. And it's not just in the Bible. Other, other ancient documents in Mesopotamia talk about kings and rulers living for centuries and centuries. But one thing I want you to notice at the end of verse five, the phrase, and he died. In the end of verse six, and he died. Adam died, Seth died. Look at, look at verse 11, Enosh died. And then at the end of verse 14, Canaan died. And all of these verses, verse five, verse eight, verse 12, verse 17, verse 20, verse 27, verse 31, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Because there is sin, there is death. So. Remember what the serpent said when he was talking to Adam and Eve? He said, you will surely not die. So what does this confirm? The serpent is a liar. He lied to them. They all died. Sin is spreading. Mortality is is being passed down from generation 
skipped a generation. There is a one person, Enoch, in verse 21, it says that he walked with God and the Lord took him. We don't really know what was, what was happening uh, there, but we see this continual pattern of death, depravity, and destruction, all because of sin, all because of the corruption of humankind. Now I mentioned, I don't have time to get into what happened with Enoch. There's something else in chapter six that I won't have time to get into. It's this idea, look at verse two. It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any as they chose. And uh, there's a number of different ways of interpreting this. Time will not allow me to really get into that. But in the description of this video, you'll see that there's another video from Dr. Peter Gentry, who's a brilliant Old Testament uh, interpreter. And he uh, outlines all the different ways to sort of think about that passage. So after this message, you can go uh, and check that out so that you can better understand what is going on uh, in that uh, passage. So we see the utter corruption of humankind because of sin and that, that humans are all dying as a result. The wages of sin is death. Then we come to chapter six where God is going to deal with this corruption. He is going to bring his judgment. And this leads us to our second point today, the point of recreation. Recreation. If we look at chapter six, verse five, it says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is God's assessment of the corruption of humankind. Every thought and intention was only evil continually. This is how corrupt human beings had become. Verse six says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. This isn't, this isn't God saying that he, wish, he wishes he could go back in time and somehow change things. This isn't God taking responsibility for the evil and the wickedness of humanity. No, we are responsible for our own sin and for our own corruption. God is merely expressing sorrow. He, there is an emotional reaction. Sometimes we don't think of God as being emotional. God's not controlled by our emotions. Like we are sometimes in an unhealthy way, but God does have, he has an emotional response. He experiences sorrow. He experiences and feels regret. Now look with me at uh, chapter, chapter six, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So God lets Noah in on his plan that he is going to wipe out, he is going to judge all of the sin in the world. Verse eight of chapter six says, Noah found favor with God. This is the, the first use of that word favor or the word grace. Noah didn't deserve God's favor or grace, but God bestowed it on him. God says that he's going to wipe out the whole or every living creature. He is going to send a flood on the entire planet. 
Now, some of you are probably thinking, okay, so this is, and the series is called Storyline of Scripture, and this whole idea of the flood, this is, this is, this is keyword story. Like, this didn't actually happen. Well, listen, uh, some people may, may disagree with me on this, but again, I come back to the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God, that God can do anything. If God wants to flood the entire earth and start over, then that is his prerogative. He has the power to be able to do that. Now, science would say, or some scientists would say that, that this, is, this is impossible, but those same scientists would say that the whole world was covered in ice at one point, or that the whole atmosphere of the world was changed because of a massive asteroid. So I don't really understand why a flood is more unbelievable than an ice age or that an asteroid. It's also important to note that ancient cultures on literally every continent on planet Earth have some sort of myth or story about a global flood. Every ancient culture on every continent. This is not just a Bible thing. This is, this is everywhere. So sh should we really ignore the fact that all of these different cultures who have so many different stories of origins and myths and yet we all hold this one story in common? Regardless of, of how, you, uh, how you see this playing out in terms of history, what, what God is making clear here is that because he is creator, he is judge. And we can learn some things about his judgment from this flood story. First off, that his judgment is not arbitrary. God is not fickle. He didn't just on a whim decide, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to destroy the earth. No, God's heart was pained. He was filled with sorrow. He was filled with regret. It was based off objective evidence that every intention of the human heart was only evil continually. His judgment is not arbitrary. Secondly, his judgment comes with advance warning. Over a century went by when, when Noah is building this ark and when he is proclaiming, he's called in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, a preacher of righteousness. Noah tried to warn other people and tell them to change their ways or to come and join him on the ark, but people just scoffed at him. His judgment is not arbitrary. His judgment comes with advance warning, with the hope of repentance. And then lastly, his judgment is a matter of life and death. That God is the creator and sustainer of life. If we rebel against him, if we turn our backs towards him, we are rejecting life and choosing death. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. This is the first time it rained. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights in verse 12. Now we don't have time to go through the rest of chapter 7 and of chapter 8, but I, I called this point uh, recreation because there's some incredible parallels and Old Testament scholar Bruce Watke, Waltke um, points this out so clearly. Let me show you this, this uh, simple little hand-drawn diagram on, uh, on the screen here, uh, comparing in the beginning to after the flood. In chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, it talks about the, there being waters and, and deep depth and wind or ruah being 
over the waters. That's just like Genesis chapter one, where the spirit, spirit and wind is the same word, ruah in Hebrew. There's references to the sky in Genesis 1, 6 to 8, and the sky in chapter 8, verse 12. Then water and dry land appear in chapter 1 and in chapter 8. Then after that, you have birds, reference to the raven and the dove, just like the the birds being created in chapter 1. Then come the creatures and the animals coming out of the ark, just like they they were created in chapter 1. And then just at at the very end of chapter one where you have the image of God and, and the blessing of Adam and Eve and the encouragement to be fruitful and multiply, God repeats all of those same things to Noah and to his family. You see, Noah is like a second Adam. There is this sense in which God has recreated the world. God doesn't just destroy for the sake of destruction. The whole point is recreation, starting new, starting fresh. And so Noah is functioning as a second Adam. This post-flood world, this different world is a second chance for humanity. And God establishes the ground rules for this uh, for this new this new era, this new creation, this planet Earth 2.0. Look at verse 8 of Genesis chapter 9. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, let the, sign of the, let the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never come Shall, shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. So God here establishes something called a covenant. Now, we 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 use covenant language from time to time in our culture and in church culture. A covenant is a solemn commitment to put oneself under an obligation. It's something that's more personal than a contract and yet it's more formal than just an emotional expression. It's, it's, it's something that, that is rooted in relationship, but a, a relationship that is so strong that there must be some sort of formal agreement 
And that the relationship then takes precedent over the immediate needs of the individual. It's not like a contract. A contract is, well, you do your part and I'll do my part. And, and if, 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 you, if you fail in coming through on your part, then I'm no longer obligated on coming through on my part. No, a covenant is saying, no, I am just, I'm committing to my part regardless of what you do. We see covenants all throughout the Bible. As we follow the storyline of scripture, actually these covenants help us form an understanding of where God is taking this world. Let me show you another a simple hand-drawn a diagram here. So we're here in the covenant of Noah. It's found in Genesis chapter nine. The sign of the covenant is a rainbow. And notice the arrow is going in one direction. It's a unilateral covenant. God is, he's simply making a promise. He's not asking Noah to promise anything. God is saying, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a flood again. Next time a big storm comes, you need to know it's not going to go on for 40 days. That's never going to happen again. It's a one-way agreement. And as we follow the storyline of scripture, we see the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17. The sign of that covenant is circumcision. And again, it's unilateral. God had simply promised to bless Abraham. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. Then with Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 20 to 25, the the sign of that covenant is the Sabbath. Now that covenant's unique because it's bilateral. The arrows go in both directions that the people needed to obey the law and follow proper worship at the tabernacle. That was their obligation. And then God's obligation in response to them doing that was to keep them in the land, to protect them and to provide provide for them and to prosper them. Then in 2 Samuel 7, we have the covenant with David that one of his offspring would sit on his throne forever. Again, it's unilateral. And then, of course, the new covenant. It all culminates in Jesus at the, at the last supper, passing out the bread and the cup and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the signs for that are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And again, that is unilateral. So God has recreated the earth. He has uh, has established a a new way for humanity to interact with him through this covenant in making this promise to him. So then the question becomes, if, if, if Noah is like this second Adam, and if God is making this covenant to seek to make things right, to rebuild and repair this relationship that is broken down, the question then is, is Noah the offspring? Is he the one that's going to have his heel bruised but will crush the head of the serpent? Is, is he going to be the one who won't be ruled by sin like Cain was, but is going to rule over sin? Well, as we follow the story, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Now Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So here we see Noah failing. Adam failed by eating fruit. Noah failed by drinking fermented fruit. Noah did not control the desires inside of him towards sin. The desires inside of him towards sin controlled him. You see, we see an important turn in the story. God had recreated the planet, but he hadn't recreated the people. Noah was given this this covenant, but Noah was still corrupt. 
Not only was Noah corrupt, but his kids were corrupt. Ham, his, his son, when Noah is in this drunken state, naked, lying in his tent, we're not given details, but in the next verse, it says that Ham did something inappropriate in the way that he handled this, this embarrassing situation that his father found himself in. And again, we have more curses, just like in Cain. Now we have a curse going on Ham, whose descendants were the inhabitants of Canaan, which are going to play a key role in the story as the story unfolds. So we have this, this bright hope that Moses was, or sorry, that Noah was going to somehow bring in this, usher in this new relationship of God and man in this new creation. But Noah fails, his son fails, and curse, and a curse is brought on the land. Then look with me at verse 28 of chapter, of chapter 9. It says, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And here it is again. And he died. We keep hearing this all throughout the book of Genesis. The serpent lied. Everyone dies who rebels against God. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. That's another Toledoth. It's another genealogy. And that this is tracing the line of Noah down into the next uh, generations, bridging the gap between Noah and Abraham, who we'll get to uh, next week. But look with me at this, at, at really the, the pinnacle of, uh, of uh, sin's uh, corruption. And uh, as, we're, as we're moving forward, I think I might not have stated the last point. So if we could, I'll just bring up the points on the screen uh, right now for you. So point one was corruption. Point two was recreation. And point three is covenant. Corruption, recreation, and a covenant. Sorry about that. I'm getting excited and uh, following the storyline without announcing kind of the, the points and the chapter headings. Now we turn to Genesis uh, chapter 11 briefly. It says in chapter 11 verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Notice this, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So their desire is to make a tower that goes up to heaven. And the, the rationale for that is so that they would make a name for themselves. They're not concerned about bearing the image of God and representing God. And also notice that they want to prevent themselves from being dispersed over the whole earth. Remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, his instructions to Adam and Eve, and in Genesis chapter 9, his instructions to Noah, fill the earth, go out into the earth, go from coast to coast. You're my image bearers. I want to spread my glory to the ends of the earth. But here, the people of Babel want to prevent themselves from being dispersed. They want to make a name not for God, but for themselves. Then I love verse five. The Lord came down to see the city 
and the tower. This, there's just some brilliant, subtle little irony here on behalf of the, the author. The, the people of Babel are like, let's build this big tower. Come on, let's go. Let's get it up there. It's way, it's super high. We're going to reach to heaven. And then the, even to be able to see the tower, God had to come down. God's like, oh, look at that. Look at those humans down there in Babel. They're, look like they've got some sort of construction project going on. I, I can't quite make it up from all the way up here in heaven. I'll just go down so that I can see it. Verse six, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down again, go down. And there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So here we have God coming down and they wouldn't do it God's way. They wouldn't willfully go and fill the earth and subdue it. And so God intervened. He, he disrupted their languages. All because God came down into this world that is filled with corruption, into this world that even though the, the earth was recreated, there was still corruption in our sin. Even though God made a covenant, there was still corruption. God came down. God came down. That phrase, God came down, really sets the, stone, the, 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 sets the tone for the, rest of the, for the rest of the story. Spoiler alert, God came down, not just to Babel, God came down to Bethlehem. God came down not to spread the nations apart, but to bring the nations uh, together. God came down to suffer and die on the cross because those had broken his covenant. He came to establish a new covenant in his blood. He came down in his son, Jesus Christ. And he came down by his spirit in Acts chapter two, when, when, when the Holy Spirit came, the, those, those people that were praying in the upper room were given the ability, what? To speak in different languages. Acts chapter two is like the reversal of Babel, where, where the nations are no longer being spread apart. The nations are being put together into one holy nation, a royal priesthood, so that when you come to Revelation chapter seven and verse nine, you see people coming from every tribe and tongue and nation. You have people coming from every different language. The languages are being brought together. Why? All because of God who came down. The God who came down in Hebrews 12, verse 24, who came down and shed his blood. And Hebrews 12, 24 says his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the one who came down, the one who promises to come down again and to bring judgment. And just like in the days of Noah, God's judgment is not arbitrary. He's, his judgment is objective. He's coming to judge sin. And his judgment is coming with advance warning to allow time for repentance. Read 1 Peter chapter 4. 
and his, and his judgment is, sorry, I think it's 2 Peter chapter 4, and his, his judgment will be a matter of life and death. And just as the world was once destroyed by water, loved ones, the book of Revelation tells us that this world is going to be destroyed by fire. But God doesn't just work in terms of destruction. He always works in terms of recreation. And the people of Babel wanted to build their own city. Meanwhile, all this time, God is building a city that's going to come, not, not a city that goes up to heaven. God is building a city that is going to come down from heaven down to earth, the new Jerusalem, the glorious city. And listen, loved ones, here's the best part. Noah got to experience the recreation of God in the midst of judgment, but Noah wasn't recreated himself. He was still a sinner. God is not only going to recreate the heavens and the earth after he destroys it all by fire, Loved ones, God is going to recreate you and me. He's going to, in, in the twinkling of an eye, he's going to change us and he's going to welcome us into a world where outside and inside there is no more sin. There is no more corruption. There is no more evil. There is just living in a right relationship with our creator in the new covenant. And so, loved ones, this is the storyline of Scripture. It reminds us of our own corruption, our own sin. It reminds us of the beautiful covenant that God has made for us. It reminds us that, that we are not here trying to build a city or make a name for ourselves. We are waiting on God's work of recreation and the new city in the new heavens and the new earth where the world will be recreated and we will be recreated as well. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. Although these passages that we have read is so filled with, with your righteous judgment, we thank you that is also filled with your mercy and your grace, Lord. God, we thank you for the way that you preserved humanity, that, that even though with Cain and then with Lamech, we see people killing one another left, right, and center, Lord, that you still protected and preserved the offspring of Adam and Eve. God, we thank you that even in the midst of the judgment of the flood, you showed favor to Noah and were merciful to him. And Lord, we thank you that, that even though the people of Babel will, were spread to the ends of the earth, Lord, that was a mercy to prevent them from committing even greater wickedness. And Lord, we thank you that you one day will bring people together from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. And Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that we would be faithful in fulfilling the commission that you have given to us to make disciples. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.